We're in Luke chapter 4. We just finished the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And we're picking up at verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by every one. So here we have sort of a transitional passage to take us from the preceding uh, uh, sequence to this new sequence. Completely different um, approach now is is beginning. A collection of Jesus' teaching, scenes of Jesus' teaching. Not so much what he had to teach as the fact that he was teaching, that he's healing, that he's working miracles, that he's becoming famous. It's an interesting collection here. Uh, given that it seems as though um, it's kind of almost like it's out of sequence. So let's just uh, taste it and see what we find. When he came to Nazareth, that's Jesus, when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, remember that was uh, indicated that um, Mary was uh, from Nazareth, that she's went down, they were, uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they returned to Nazareth, after Jesus was <clears throat> circumcised, and um, and that was where he would have been brought up. Uh, Luke tells those accounts. So now he's coming back home, essentially. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue <clears throat> on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now let's pause right there. He's handed a scroll, a Torah scroll that contains, a scroll that's not necessarily from specifically the Torah. In fact, since it contains Isaiah, we know it's not from the Torah. It's from the prophets. But it's a collection of the Hebrew scrolls. So what he would have been given would have been a Hebrew manuscript a Hebrew scroll of the text of the prophet Isaiah in Hebrew. And it's handed to him, which indicates at least to some that this would be in conjunction with the, the Hebrew usage of a lectionary, which we knew ex- we know existed at the time. So he's been given it to read. Not an uncommon experience for a a uh, Jewish uh, gentleman who is uh, known in the community to be given a Torah scroll to read, and he reads it. Now remember, th- the scrolls do not have chapters or verses. They might have, on occasion, paragraph divisions, <clears throat> but they did not have chapter or verse. So what seems a little strange to us as a stopping place isn't necessarily strange to them. The same could be said for a starting place, although here it seems to be fairly mm, cogent. He reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. And in our uh, New Testament renderings, it reads as follows in the NRSV, it reads as follows. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, that's Isaiah 61, verse 1, and the very first part of verse 2. Now, if you, if you turn in your Bible to Isaiah 61, you'll find the reading there is going to be somewhat different, at least in the modern translations. In Isaiah 61, in the modern translations, at least in the NRSV, it reads, the Spirit of the, Lord, of, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor. That's how it reads in the NRSV. Yes, Steve. Something I've been thinking about since last week, and this kind of brings it up. Mm -hmm. If you went into a Jewish synagogue or a household today, yes, would their, I, I guess their primary Bible source is the Torah? Or if you, if you found what they have mm -hmm. for Isaiah, mm -hmm. how different would it be than what we're reading? Uh, in, in, for example, the NRSV, well, they, they use something called a Tanakh, which is a uh, English, in, in America, is an English translation of the Hebrew Bible. Well, and it what contains, does the Hebrew Bible have in it? It has essentially oh, what is in a, pro, it, it, the law, the, the histories or teachings, and the prophets. Okay. The Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, so in addition to the, the Torah, same as what we the Torah, in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, Old Testament. I mean. uh, yes, in the Protestant Old Testament, yes, it's an. It would be in in a in a Jewish home today. They would use what's known as a Tanakh, which has the Torah, the Nevi'im, and, and the Ketuvim, the, the 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 law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay. okay? And this portion is from the prophets, and it's from Isaiah. And it reads, there are differences, but you can understand it, you can comprehend it. It reminds you of what you've read in, the, in your Old Testament Bible. I mean, it's, it's not tremendously different. Okay. There are differences, but it's not tremendously different. And especially not if you're using a more modern translation like the NRSV. Now, Isaiah, go back to Isaiah 61, you may notice that there were differences. Some of them rather significant differences between 61 verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 on one hand, and Luke chapter 4 verses 18 and 19 on the other hand. Rather interesting differences actually. Again, I'm going to read it a little parallel here from the from Isaiah 61 and then I'll read it from Luke uh, chapter 4 verse 18 the spirit of the Lord God is upon me the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me because he has anointed me so far so good just a little more precision as to the identity of who it is who's done the job he has sent me back, back from Isaiah again he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, 
to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me is now missing in the Luke in Luke. To bind up uh, oh and, and the word is oppressed in Isaiah, whereas it's poor in Luke. Interesting. RSV, it's afflicted. Afflicted? Yeah. Broken hearted. Oh, we're not there yet. We're not the broken hearted yet. Oppressed, you're right. Just the oppressed, yeah. the afflicted. What does the King James render? Oh, you're in Luke. You're not, never mind, never mind, never mind. Uh, anybody else have anything other than the uh, NRSV? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. All right, stop. Poor. They used poor in Isaiah. That's what I was looking for. Okay, and there's going to be a reason for that in a minute. But remember, the King James, which is what he's reading there, uses poor the same as the NRSV does in Luke. Okay, keep that in mind. And yet the more modern translations render Isaiah 61 there as oppressed or what does the RSV render it? Afflicted. Afflicted. And then Jerusalem uses afflicted there. Okay, now they're not done. To bind up the brokenhearted over in Isaiah, and there's nothing in Luke for that line. Hmm. That line's been dropped. Is, it, is that found in Isaiah? It says to, uh, after, to after preach good news, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To heal, well, bind up and heal are more or less the same, but it's there. Yeah. It's there. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. Now keep it. Let's keep going. To proclaim liberty to the captives, and in, in Luke it release. reads, "He is uh, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives." Yeah. Close. Close. Liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Ooh, that's that's in Isaiah, but that's not that's that's kind of con conflated together. In, in, in Luke, in Luke, in NRSV, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. In Isaiah, the two lines are to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Interesting. Curiouser and curiouser. He's not, he's not done. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Over in Luke, it, it adds, and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free. Okay, now you see some really interesting differences, don't you? Between Luke and Isaiah. And then that last line uh, in verse 19 of Luke, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, there you go. Verse 2, part 1, or part A of Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. No problem. So, what they've done is you've got a difference in translation, don't you? Between Isaiah 61 and Luke 14, Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. Why? Why does Luke 4, 18 and 19, which is supposed to be Jesus reading Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 part A, why are they so different? Why are they so in? Why are they? Why are they the same passage but so different? Well, the first one it says the Lord God, which may be aimed at a different 
group, as you mentioned before. It goes back to Genesis. Well, it's, it's clearer in Isaiah than it is in Luke, in that sense. The Lord God, and in mine, it has God in all caps. That therefore means that Isaiah, and Lord, though, is in lowercase. The L is in uppercase, but the O-R-D is in lowercase, meaning that it, it was not Yahweh Elohim, but Adonai Elohim, literally. We'll talk about the significance of that later. Uh, but then you see, because the Lord, and it's in all caps in Isaiah, verse 1. How does that translate? Yahweh. When you see capital L, capital in, O, in, capital R, in, capital E, that's Yahweh. Hebrew, is there capitalization? No, this is the what English trans. That's the English <laughs> translation convention right, you know, to show. Well, no, you got to understand. In the Hebrew Bible, well, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, refuse to say God's personal name out of fear of violating the commandment that says, thou shalt not take the Lord's thy name, Lord thy God's name in vain. So they refused to say Yahweh. Instead, any time they saw Yahweh written in their Bibles, they would pronounce it Adonai. And that is reflected in our English translations. Anytime you see Lord spelt in all caps in your Bible, that is rendering Yahweh out of the Hebrew. Anytime you see it in the lower case, it is actually the word Adonai. All right. Well, Next. Give the significance of being one or the other. Well, one is the personal name. One is a title. Yahweh is a personal name. Adonai is a title. But regardless, anytime they would see Yahweh written, they would refuse to say it. Instead, yep. they would verbalize Adonai. And in fact, they got around to changing the vowel points that were attached to the consonants to tell people, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai. They would swap out the vowel points for Adonai and put them into the consonants for Yahweh, which is, by the way, how we got the name Jehovah. I'll bring you a, I'll bring you a handout next week that shows how we got the name Jehovah. All right? Because that's, that's an artificial name. It doesn't exist. Um, Never, that, that, this is entirely beside the point. My point, I, I mean, rabbit trails are fun. My point is, when you compare Luke and Isaiah, if Jesus is reading from Isaiah scroll, why does Luke render it so incredibly differently than the Isaiah passage in your Bible? And frankly, Isaiah is found at, in a modern Tanakh, or in the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Bible that exists in its most ancient copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance. When he's reading, he is he interpreting the word too? Not yet. He's going to give an interpretation of it or an application of it. Right now, he's supposed to be reading it as it is written. Now. So did it get written down a couple of different ways? Our hint comes from Steve's reading of the King James, where it rendered in that first portion to bring good news to the poor in Isaiah, yeah. instead of to bring good news to the oppressed or the afflicted, it renders it the same. 
why? It's because the King James depends upon the same <clears throat> translation of the Hebrew Bible as the author of Luke did. I'll just explain it straight out. Luke, in writing his gospel, is quoting directly from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Instead of taking a Hebrew Bible and giving a new translation of it, he's not reinventing the wheel. He simply took a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that he had available to him called the Septuagint, and he copied down the verses from Isaiah 61, verses 1 in the first part of verse 2. Instead of, instead of therefore, showing the Hebrew that Jesus would have read, when he depicts Jesus pulling out that scroll and reading it, in the actual event, Jesus was reading from the Hebrew scroll, not from the Septuagint. You, in, while you would have had Septuagints in use in synagogues in diaspora Judaism outside of Galilee and Judea, in Greece and in Rome and in Asia Minor, you would have had, yes, you would have had Hebrew scrolls, some, but you would have had more likely had the Septuagint in, in use the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. But you would not have had that in Galilee or Judea. Instead, you would have read from your Hebrew scroll that would have been handed, the one that would have handed to Jesus. He would have rolled it open to this portion in Isaiah 61, probably was marked by the lector, and he would have started reading. And then when he was finished, he would roll, he rolls it up and hands it back to the, to the leader, to the lector, and sits down. Now, He's reading from the Hebrew, but we don't get to read that. We don't get to hear that. What we hear is the Greek translation of it that was already pre-existing that Luke had access to as a common everyday Hebrew Bible in Greek translation, the Bible of the church at this time, and he takes it from there. Okay, now, the same, let me finish this. Let me draw it to a conclusion. The translators of the King James did not know Hebrew as well as modern translators know it. They depended heavily upon the Septuagint to render their English translations of the Hebrew Bible. Hence, you get a lot of Septuagintial readings in English translation from the Old Testament out of the King James, unlike what you get in modern translations that come straight from the Hebrew Bible. In other words, much of your English translation in the King James of the Old Testament comes to us through Greek or possibly even Latin, not straight from Hebrew. Whereas our modern translations come straight from Hebrew. And in addition, the King James is based upon where it does go, quote from the Hebrew, a 10th century AD Hebrew scroll and 8th and 9th century AD Greek Septuagints whereas the NRSV and the, and the New Jerusalem Bible and the RSV tend to rely heavily upon much more ancient Hebrew scrolls like the Dead Sea Scroll version of Isaiah which predated Jesus you know, I mean, it, it's not, but it could theoretically have been 
the scroll that Jesus read from. It was in existence when Jesus was there. So, so that, that kind of gets the point across. The difference that we have when we're reading Luke's uh, uh, citations of the Hebrew Bible from what we read in the Hebrew Bible, the difference is because we're getting them filtered to us through the translation of the Septuagint. Said again, Isaiah 61 that we read here from the NRSV comes to a straight translation out of Hebrew. From Luke reading, reading what Jesus read here, it's from Hebrew to Greek to English. And that's the reason why you have such a significant difference. And guess what? Nearly every rendition of Hebrew scripture found in the New Testament, from the Gospels, to the letters of Paul, to the book of Revelation, to the book of Hebrews, are all dependent upon the Septuagint, the Greek translation, with only a very few exceptions. And most of those exceptions are liturgical in nature from the Jewish liturgical practice. So keep that in mind. When you're reading the New Testament and they quote from the Old Testament, they're not really quoting from the Hebrew Bible. They're quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So it's yet another step removed when you're reading it now into English. Okay, but this yes. NIV yes. you said goes back to the Hebrew. NIV goes back to the Hebrew. Yes, it does. So there'll be a difference between King James. That's the difference between King James. Bible. In many cases, yes, except that there's also a theological mm, adjustment being made too by the translator, but that's true in any translation. Okay. The question that I had was when they put, you know, when Luke's writing this, and we going back to the first chapter. Yeah. I researched this stuff. Uh huh. I talked to a lot of people. Yeah. Okay. So in this case, he gets to this point. He came, comes back and. Jesus, the story he's told is that Jesus started preaching and one of the things he did he read from this scroll and this first chapter yeah. it, it didn't say this is what Jesus said in other words no, this, he just reads it, yeah. I mean he said he, he he read from the scroll and this is the scroll he read from he did not try to quote Jesus per se of that happening well that's what he's doing here he's yeah. depicting okay. it, well, never thought of it in the narrative <clears throat> yeah. but instead of retranslating the Hebrew into Greek as Jesus would have read it in the Hebrew, he's giving you a translation that's pre-existing. But the sayings, if you want to say that, the sayings in Q and blah and all yes. that, would just, instead of having it been written down like this well, is, just had a reference to where it We don't know. Okay. This is actually a fairly <sighs> paraphrastic rendering of a parallel version of this story that's found over in... Um, Mark chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 okay but um, but it it uh, what we have Luke doing here is pulling from the Septuagint alright question yes would the hearers of Jesus reading that consider Isaiah a single writer instead of 1st 2nd and 3rd Isaiah uh -huh. Probably first, only one. Only one. They probably would have under at the modern or more modern understanding of Isaiah as having essentially three authors um, is a is, as I just said is something of a modern understanding 
At that time, Isaiah was Isaiah was Isaiah was Isaiah. So he got the longest book in the first prophet position for that yeah, reality. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? Yes, it is. So, because if they had thought it was three, they would have... They would have identified it as such. You would think so. They wouldn't have had a problem with that. It would still would have been scripture to them. But it, wouldn't it have been unusual that people of that time didn't live that long? Yeah. That may be just a <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah, it's why a good, would they, it, why would they good buy question. that when it was not I don't, normal? I don't <laughs> think that that was an issue for them. Yeah. So here we have Jesus. He, let's go back to the narrative story. We have Jesus. He's in his home synagogue. They've given him this Torah scroll, which is not uncommon. He has unrolled it. He has read it. He's rolled it back up, and he has handed it to the attendant. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it to the attendant. Now, we're not done with the reading, but we want to finish the narrative. And sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, and by the way, he's preaching sitting. <laughs> <laughs> which was common yes all of this by the way is reflective of Jewish synagogue practice both in Galilee Judea at the time as well as in diaspora Judaism uh, it is not uncommon today he says this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing Ooh. so what he this is his interpretation of the passage it's now been fulfilled today. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now you could go on and read elsewhere in Isaiah, fo the following verses in Isaiah, to see therefore what hasn't been fulfilled, if you wish. Some people do that. But I just want to look at what he says has been fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, rendering just out of Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed. The Greek word there is Krisen or ekrisen. Krisen. Christos means anointed one. We get Jesus Christ from that. The Hebrew rendering there, by the way, for anointed in your Hebrew Bible is Mashiach. Messiah. Wow. It's like neon sign. Pay attention here. I am an anointed one. Now, there have been plenty of anointed ones in the past, but there is the anointed one that they're looking for, too. And here he is making this affirmation about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To bring, to bring good news to the poor. The poor. Who is the uh, Messiah in Isaiah? You mean the historical reference here? Mm -hmm. Was that not? Was that not a, uh, a non-Hebrew? I'm sorry. Was that a non-Hebrew? Cyrus. Uh, this is one of the servant songs, so they understood it as themselves. The uh, the basic understanding of the Jewish people of this passage to begin with was that the servant, the suffering servant, is all of Israel. All right, that's the Jewish understanding of it. Within Isaiah, the suffering servant songs also do seem to be understood 
from the Isaiah author as being personification of all the people. So the people of Israel have become Who is the, the deliverer. Hmm, sorry? Who is the deliverer? Oh, you're, you're reading from, oh, here we are. Um, uh, to bind, uh, the good news of deliverance is the, is the title for the segment. Uh, that's, that, the is, that, that is not any way, shape, or form found anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. That's, oh, I that's your translator. That's, that, but it is, it is a descriptor of what's being said in 61. So who was the deliverer they're referring to? Notice that it's in the first person. Mm-hmm. Well, according to the note in my NRSV, it's identified as the suffering servant or the servant song, which is a personification of all the people. Well, 53.5. Well, that's the one, th- those are ones that, of course, are applied to Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Christians. Well, that's what I'm <laughs> saying. <laughs> I'm talking to and, and the hearers that is of correct. the Hebrew word by, read by Jesus. What did, how did they interpret that? Well, they, the they, the, as I just told you, yeah. the Hebrew people, the Jews then and now, interpret the suffering servant as being personification of the entirety of their people. Yeah. All of them. The Hebrew people, specifically the Jews, are the suffering servant. And they understood that any, uh, any place where the suffering servant is rendered in Isaiah is considered to be them. The church, the Christians who wrote Luke, are already interpreting that specifically for Jesus. Okay. And that's exactly what he does here. That's exactly what Luke is doing here. Applying this identification specifically to Jesus to make a statement as to who this Jesus is. And, and he has Jesus saying, this has been fulfilled in your hearing of it. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Look at their response. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. So at first, this is fine. They're really kind of pleased by this. I mean, ooh, oh, cool. We're getting to see something from Isaiah getting fulfilled. Wow. And they said, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? <laughs> yeah, we knew him when he was picking his nose and rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> when he couldn't hit a nail with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I heard what you yelled when you held your finger with that hammer. Is he good at that with the corner? He said to them, verse 23, he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Uh Huh? What? What things? Jesus has just come back from the wilderness. We got this little sentence saying that he's been talked about, lauded, but we haven't seen anything. This, this feels like it's been plucked out of where it ought to be and placed early to, to symbol or to proclaim the beginning of his public ministry, which is exactly what Luke has done. He's plucked this account out of the historical sequence that's found more properly oriented in Luke's uh, version, in, uh, excuse me, Mark's version, chapter 6, Matthew's version, chapter 13, and pulled it earlier to make a point which is why we have them knowing about him doing mighty works and deeds, and yet he hadn't done any yet. 
He hadn't even called any disciples yet. We're going to have, by the way, that's going to be a problem again pretty soon. <laughs> he says, you're going to ask me to do all those things in, your, in, your hometown, in my hometown that you heard me doing elsewhere. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. He's expecting trouble. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Isaiah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Huh? What's he saying this to us for, they said to him. Hey, hey, Mabel, did you hear that? He just recounted Elijah going up to that Gentile woman in Sidon after coming home. And he's not, he's, he, hush up, honey, he's not done. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Huh? Wait a minute, why is he saying, reminding us of Elijah going off to Sidon to, to, to live with this, with this foreign hussy and, 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 and Elisha's healing of a foreign general of leprosy? Why is, he, why is he doing that? Why is he reminding us that a prophet's never welcome at home? And they go, they had this 180-degree swing. So they'll run him off and he can be right. Well, yeah, that's the purpose. <laughs> that's the purpose. He incited them to dislike him. I mean, it says that they spoke well of him. Back here in verse 22, it says they all spoke well of him. Oh, boy, well, I knew him when. Yes, it was, and then he, he says just a few things to remind them that, you know, guess what? They're not going like to like me for very long, and they don't. They immediately don't. People can turn on you in a hurry. When they heard this, verse 28, when they heard this, all the in the synagogue were filled with rage. Talk about knowing how to win people and make friends. That's not exactly what you got here. This is his hometown, and they're pissed at him. Wow. They got up, drove him out of the town, and, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. Now, this is a cliff overlooking the Jezreel Valley. From there, you can look across, and you can see Mount Tabor to one side, and you can see Megiddo all the way across the other side. And if you look up the Jezreel Valley, you can see Mount Carmel, up the other end in the distance. So you, you can see, yes, because you're on a high point overlooking the valley. They're going to throw him off and kill him. That's what they intended to do. But that's not Jesus' idea. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. I mean, it's like he turned on his cloaking device and walked off, pretty much. No, he walked in a hurry. It doesn't say. It just simply says he passed through the midst of them. More than a cloaking device, he sort of phased himself out of reality and walked through them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's how it starts. <laughs> it has been fulfilled. That's I'm how it starts. He, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It, it even says, filled with the power of the Spirit. Filled with the power of the Spirit, he's been anointed, he's making this proclamation about himself. The people hear it, at first they like it, but then he reminds them that 
Y'all have never, ever, ever received God's prophets. Killed them ever. All, except Kill. Elijah. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I missed on Listen. that one. Run away! <laughs> he referred to Elijah. Yeah, he does. He does. And the Jewish world looks for Elijah at each Saber Man. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Uh-huh. And we had Elijah. We had John the Baptist kind of as a second Elijah, who, by the way, gets killed. Absolutely. And then Elisha is famous for his calling the bears on the boys. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a wonderful story? It's a wonderful story. When you're getting bald and gray, you think about that one. Don't you pick on a man who's going bald. You might get bears sucked after you. The only prophet who survived, and a really strange prophet who killed kids. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna tell you something. This really is strange. He's there. He proclaims his identity. He sets himself within the context of the suffering servant, and at the same time, an anointed one. And then he leaves. He leaves. Having ticked them all off, he leaves. That's usually a good time to exit. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Just did that. <laughs> he went. I mean, they're getting ready to call the district superintendent, so he's going to get out of town as fast as he can. He went. Uh, he went down to Capernaum. He went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. It's um, it's a town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, in a rather important town, actually. Uh, it was a city, a, a Jewish city of commerce on the northern shore, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. Not just that he was a homeboy made good, and they were all proud of that to begin with, but no. Here they're astounded that he's teaching because he spoke with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them. He came out of him without having done him any harm. Give us a pronoun definition here. Who's who's him? He and him. Oh, okay. When the demon had thrown him, the man that had been possessing. The man that was possessed. Let me double check it. Yes, the man who was possessed. Before them, the them is the people who were standing there watching, Mm -hmm. he the demon came out of him, the man who was possessed, okay. without having well, done really him, the man who has been let's, possessed. Let's compare those references in our translation. See if there's any confusion. Oh, okay. Read well, verse. James is right, read, so verse read, first. read verse thirty. <laughs> <laughs> read verse thirty-five there. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, "Be quiet and come out of him." First him. Yeah. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst. It came out of him and did not hurt him. See, that makes it easier. It says it came out of him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think Jimmy made it a little easier for us, didn't it? Interesting. Yeah, there's lots of pronouns in there. 
luckily, most it's easier to understand than the Greek, where you don't have quite that many. You do have a, quite a few pronouns here, but they're pretty obvious which one they're connected to. Okay. They were all amazed. Actually, here's the point. I mean, you can get, you can get caught up in, in this event. You can, I mean, there, the commentaries included all sorts of things, like identifying how this possession was in exorcism was a lot like all the others that you find. And, and you can do all that if you want. But the point is in verse 36. They were all amazed and kept saying to one another, what kind of utterance is this? For with authority, there's that word again, and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and out they come. So they're amazed. He's speaking with authority, and he's acting with authority, commanding with authority. Producing what? results. Well, yeah. But the results, now, you take this in the context of when it happened. Yeah. This is you have my, to. going to my Sunday school class now. Yeah, you have got to do that, yes. <clears throat> the uh, uh, demon being exercised was, right. was commonplace. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. So it wasn't a big deal. Well. Except the way it is presented. Except, well, except the way it's presented in that here, well, and as we will see in another event of this, the authority is seated in himself. Well, there wasn't a big right, ritual. Right. He just called they're, the demon Well, they're amazed, they're amazed at the authority. He speaks with one who has authority, and then he, he exercises with authority. The nominal process for exercising a demon is to cite somebody else's authority. Well, this nice authority. This says that they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Interesting. What translation is that? Confused. New International Version. The NIV. Mm. I don't know. It's not, I was going to say, it's not my Bible. My husband didn't bring it. You hit it. I didn't. It was wrong. What, what was a clean spirit? Must be what was what? Yeah. Just because there has to be unclean spirits. Just because there are unclean spirits, do you think that means there has to be clean spirits? Absolutely. A clean spirit's one's taking a shower. I don't know. I think a clean spirit would be understood as an angel like what Gabriel or Michael. What, what, what is it? What's, what's the Greek mean in unclean? And where's the clean? Yeah, just it, it says um, spirit of a demon, an unclean one. Hmm. In general, though, in that practice at that time, and this is what I'm studying right now, is that in this, there's always. Uh, Spirits or mystics, angels or and demons were but a part of correct. the tradition. It so, good, but, right. but are they ours? But they're good or bad. They can yeah. be either good or bad. You know? Well, a, a clean spirit or or just a single angel, angelos, would be considered a clean spirit in that sense. Okay. An unclean one is aikarthartoi, a dimainoi, aikarthartoi, which means literally a, a catharting demon. Mm -hmm. A filthy, dirty demon is the basic idea. Unclean. Unclean. Yes. Good, exactly. Good translation. From the demiurge. Yeah. Pretty much. But there, yes. there is yes. this assumption of an entity that occupies a, a soul? Is that what a, it is? Not a soul, a body. Okay. A body. Keep in mind, the Jews had a real hard time not only with disembodied human souls. Mm -hmm which is why they had to have resurrections if they believed in mm -hmm. continuation. 
But they also had a problem with disembodied, unclean, fallen angels, deities, or demons, or mm -hmm. monsters. Angels were a little different. They seemed to have angelic bodies. The demons had been robbed of those. Yeah, but this says that the Greek unclean spirits were considered fallen angels. Well, that's, that's, that's a nominal Jewish interpretation of what yeah. a demon is. Let's yeah. keep going. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. So we already had it said that things have been heard about him all over. We have it again now. Reports are beginning to reach everywhere, but we've already had that said. This is, this is a dis, these are these, Nazareth and now Capernaum. These are kind of disconnected events, stories, plucked out of where they belonged, elsewhere in the synoptic account, and placed earlier to make a point. I won't substantiate it, but the Gospel of John front loads all these affirmations in the first few chapters about who Jesus is. Likewise, Luke is front-loading lots of affirmations about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. We have this first affirmation, he is the anointed one or an anointed one, taking on the characteristic and understanding of the suffering servant. Now we have this front-loaded business of him having authority, teaching authority and delivering authority. Delivering. Interesting. Hmm. Verse 38. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Who is Simon? We, hasn't, we haven't met Simon, have we? No, we haven't. Not in Luke's gospel. The reader is expected to know who Simon is, obviously. But we haven't. If you've never read it this before, you don't know who that is. Yeah, which Simon is it? Simon. Well, it's Simon Peter, but we don't know it yet. We haven't There's been another told. Simon. We haven't been, well, yeah, but it's not that Simon. <laughs> it's, not, it's the assumption is, is this is you know who this Simon is, isn't it? Another story that's been plucked out of location elsewhere in the synoptic sequence and front-loaded for a purpose. Let's find out what that purpose is. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Now, notice what he does. This is very similar to what he did with the demon. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve him. Fever wasn't an unclean spirit. I'm sorry? Fever was not an unclean spirit. Was or was not? Well, apparently, are you asking a question? I'm asking a question. Is the Greek? It, but it doesn't fever. say, it, it says fever. It doesn't okay. say anything about it being an unclean so spirit. This was and, a, and yet the healing has some of the characteristics of an exorcism. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at the four different miracle types of miracle stories in Luke, you've got exorcism, healings that are distinguishable from exorcisms, resuscitations, and natural miracles. Uh, this is a, the second category, but it's hard to distinguish between the two. Well, it's almost as if it is it's going to get a demon. In the next of course it is. <laughs> of course it's going to get more confusing. Because it talks about sickness and then it talks about the demons came out of them. Uh -huh. They're uh -huh. healed, but... They, another characteristic of this period was they often connected. <laughs> we, do, we do today too sometimes. Think about, if you're thinking about cancer and it's evil. Mm -hmm. we, we do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We might be a step removed from it to some degree, but we do much the same thing, at least metaphorically. 
a little more literal here, but let's 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 see let's see that confusion. So his he's gone in. We've met Simon Simon's mother-in-law before we met <laughs> Simon. Wow, and and he rebukes this fever, and it leaves her, and immediately she got up and began to serve him. Now this is one of those healings that's almost indistinguishable from an exorcism. We got some healings that obviously clearly aren't articulated this way. Here's one of those that's a little bit weird. You know, it really doesn't matter that we don't know Simon because it's not, this doesn't connect that with Peter in any way. It's just a... Well, it does kind of set the stage for why he would then follow. In fact, that's one of the interpretations. It's why does, one of the biggest problems with Mark and Matthew's rendition is for no reason at all. Peter, James, and John drop everything and follow Jesus. Whereas here we have his mother-in-law having been healed. healed. But the story probably is here just as another example of Jesus' authority. That's exactly right. This it, is a front-loading... It, 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 it could have been whoever's mother-in-law. Correct. Now that, that is true. But, but Luke has taken this event from somewhere else in the synoptic tradition and pulled it forward to again establish Jesus' authority. Yet again. You know, it's really interesting in this study and the New Jerusalem Bible um, has a fairly lengthy thing about back to the story of the uh, reading the scroll of the temple yes. and of, of why Luke kind of combined two stories where Jesus has early acceptance and uh -huh. later is rejected. He's kind of made it right. one it, it telescoped it together. It's really, uh, I'm finding it interesting how much literary telling the story is a part of this, um, maybe as much as the facts that are told. It is heavily literary. And I, I the difference between Luke, I'll use Mark. The difference between Luke and Mark is tremendous in this. Mark recounts the story. Luke wants to be good literature. Right. Well, and and you know, <laughs> you know, uses that right. Uh, A little. <laughs> the possibility <laughs> of a story. Yes. In telling the truth, making the truth. Yes. Well, the literary devices serve to communicate a message or to establish an identity or to tell you what to watch for in the next steps in the story. Class, class. Always get in trouble with these things. That is how it's sometimes been interpreted through some of the scholars. Uh, Fitzmaier here in this commentary that I was reading today about this, he uses this. He says that it's one of the ways in which the author tried to ameliorate the difficulties that you've got with Mark's rendition, which seems to give no reason why Peter would drop everything and follow Jesus. There's no prehistory. There's no preexistence. No pre-events. Pre Whereas John does one thing, Completely different. Luke does it this way. But 
there's other reasons for knitting us together this way. That was sort of the side effect. His initial and actual purpose is to front load these themes about Jesus. The power that Jesus had over lots of these good unclean spirits. Well, it's one of it's one of the aspects of the temptation stories. Mm-hmm. Power over evil, power over here, power authority to interpret and apply scripture. Now, authority and power to heal, authority and power to deliver from demons, to heal here. And he keeps going. As the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. <clears throat> Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he, that he was the Messiah. Well, Jesus, you just announced that you were the Messiah, essentially, mm-hmm. up at Nazareth, and they tried to you know, get rid of you. <clears throat> now that he doesn't want the demons to identify him as such, and this is reflective, by the way, of something that predates Luke in this concept called the Messianic secret that we will see repeatedly, where Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody this. Shh, it's a secret kind of idea repeatedly who heard the demons speak um, well over here in Capernaum it's the people there in the synagogue here we don't know so it's demons the, had a body and out. could talk like humans well they would talk through the human that's, oh, okay. that's very clear they, in Capernaum they are possessed people they, are the possessed. people have a demon in them and they use their mouths to speak gotcha. and their bodies to act we see that in several locations in Luke and in Matthew and in Mark now here we've got we don't have exactly what it is but it says demons also came out of many shouting so it seems like they're using the person's lungs and mouth and voice box so the person is not in charge of their decisions that would be the problem of a demonic possession. Yeah. Wow. Let's keep going. At daybreak, he, that's Jesus, departed and went into a deserted place. And the and by the way, we've seen we see this happen in the other gospels several times. So here we've got another bit of the story pulled from elsewhere. And here and there's a really good reason for it this time. At daybreak he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowds were looking for him, and when they reached him they wanted to prevent him from leaving. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he continued proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. This typifies or identifies Jesus as the proclaimer or preacher of the kingdom of God. It doesn't define what that kingdom is. It assumes you know it, just like it assumes you know who Simon is. All this stuff is being front-loaded in this chapter to make statements about who Jesus is. That Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus is has authority to teach. Has authority to expel demons. Has authority to heal. And he is the proclaimer of the kingdom of God. This is all stuff that you find elsewhere in the synoptic tradition that is being front-loaded for the purpose, and and pretty much in the same order that you find it, by the way, in Mark elsewhere, being front-loaded to make these statements about who Jesus is. And we haven't had a calling of a single disciple yet. 
Chapter 5. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, lake of Gennesaret is another term for the Sea of Galilee, also known by the Romans as Lake Tiberius. Um, it's a freshwater body, uh, fr freshwater lake below sea level. A uh, natural dam on the Jordan River uh, created it. A very important source of water for the Galilee region then and now. This is where Jesus' ministry begins and around this lake is where many of these stories come from. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there on the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, again, here we see Simon again, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Hey, put me out there. Well, get me away from these people. When he, no, not, not, not away, away, but get it, me. There's a reason. Mm -hmm. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. The Sea of Galilee, as I said, is it's below sea level, and around it, the mountains are actually sloped down from sea level hills. And the towns are built up the hills from the sea or from the lake. And it's just like a natural amphitheater. You're at the bottom, you speak, and your voice echoes up. So he's being set out a little bit into the water to get a better vocal position to speak from. Interesting. From an author who doesn't seem to know the region very well, he seems to know that characteristic of it very well. It was true then, it's true now. It's almost like a natural speaking theater in this sense. Hmm. So Simon does this, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. So. Since you let me, essentially, since you let me use the boat, I'll, let, I'll, I'll get you some fish. Mm -hmm. Simon answered, Master, why is he calling him Master? Why, why, is he, why is he calling him Master there? That's kind of strange. Hmm. Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. And if you say so, we will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. Hmm. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You'd think he'd say, Thank you, Jesus, for being a, ship, a fish magnet. But no. For, for, he, for he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. Now, you should be having in the back of your head a little alarm going, Attention, attention, attention. This is very similar to the account at the end of John's Gospel in John chapter 21 verses 1 through 11 in a post-resurrection experience when Jesus encounters the disciples on the Sea of Galilee 
They'd been fishing all night. They hadn't caught a thing. And Jesus said, throw your cast, cast your nets over there. And they did, and they pulled in a load so much they couldn't gather them all in. And then Peter turns and has this communication with Jesus. Except here he's saying, go away from me. I'm too afraid of what this might mean. Whereas in John, he goes running to Jesus because he recognizes him as the Lord. But he, it, Interesting. It's pretty natural that he might feel that he doesn't deserve that. Oh, absolutely. He's, he's actually frightened by the magnitude of this catch well, and what that might mean. And we're seeing Simon again after seeing Simon before, and he healed Simon's mother-in-law, so Simon has previous experience with this. Well, we don't know. We had never seen Simon before the mother-in-law scene. That was the first time we but ever saw him. That's my point, though. You, you get a little preview before you get this story. Exactly. That's, that's the literary function that some people have identified here. Interesting. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Well, that would scare me. <laughs> <laughs> when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Well, what I want to know is, can we have a catch and release system? Because some of those people that we catch, I'm not going to want to keep, and I certainly don't want to clean them. And they probably be awfully tough and not taste very good. And clean people, you don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> This is interesting. This is the calling of Simon, James, and John Zebedee in Luke. Very different in many ways. I get that it's supposed to be not a literal. You're supposed to catch on to that real quick. Right. But I think that If somebody Luke, told me I was going to be catching people, I would have come with you. Okay. Well, that's the whole thing of the making fishers of men kind right. of thing. I think that's a... I mean, I, that's just a literature. That is a better rendering, really it is. What? The oh yeah, it is a better rendering. It's not politically I mean, it's correct. Better, uh, it's better than saying you're going to catch people. Or, but he talks this way throughout right. the New Testament. Right. And that, I mean, that's one time, I mean, I, I guess this is clearer verbiage or whatever, but it just, it doesn't sit right. Well, apotu nun anthropus essay Zograon, which literally means men. You're going to be fishers of men. Anthropos, men, anthropos, men. But not on air. I mean, we're talking men in the generic sense that the Greek used anthropos for. Right. People. People. Fishers of people. <laughs> well, I, we would hope so. Well, yes, because because you want to catch more than just guys. Just guys. <laughs> once, <laughs> once. And wait, wait a minute. Okay. You're not up to date. Guys are now both genders. Well, that's if you're a Yankee. My grandkids. That's all. Everybody's a guy. Everyone is a guy. <laughs> the nice thing about Southern American English with y'all is that at second person plural and it's inclusive. It is right. Y'all. Without I, you, he, she, it, we, y'all, they. 
Well, that's we, the that's and, the conjugation. <laughs> and, and y'all go over yonder is just totally wonderfully defined, isn't it? <laughs> over yonder. <laughs> over yonder. Throughout the night, that's happened. Of course it has. We're terrible about that. <laughs> Once, now notice this. these are like little vignettes, little scenes. We've got another one here. Once, when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, go, he said, and show yourself to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. But now more than ever, the, crowd, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. So again, the same thing we've seen before. After the calling of Peter, James, and John, we now have this. Yet another one of these healing events to point out this fame that Jesus is developing. Another one. One day, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from the, every village of Galilee and Judea and, Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now over the other, one of the other versions of this, I think it's Matthew, yes it is, Matthew chapter, uh, uh, chapter 9, uh, renders that as uh, the roof, they take off the roof to put him through. And Mark, I think it's thatch. They pull the thatch aside to bring him through. Luke showing his cultural position in the Gentile world. It's tiles. Had a tiled roof. When he saw their faith. And how did he see their faith? They're trying to get this guy down to him. He saw their faith and said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Huh? He's not asking for forgiveness. They need healing. Your sins are forgiving. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Hmm. Hmm. When Jesus perceived their questionings, that's, uh, that's interesting. He overheard them or he read their minds. It says they perceived their questionings. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts is what this Why? says. <laughs> Why do you raise these questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. So he first forgives. They whine and complain. He don't have the right to do that. So he says, to prove to you 
that I have the authority to forgive, I'm going to heal this guy. And so he heals him. He says to him, I say to you, take up your bed and go to your home. And immediately he, the guy who had been paralyzed, stood up before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. Well, you've seen a man teach and preach with authority. You've seen a man forgive sin. You've seen a man heal. All rooted in his own authority. Not the authority of others. Not appealing to the authority of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not appealing to the authority of Moses even. Or one of the prophets even. Although he began by pointing to Isaiah and saying, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled now in your hearing of this. But beyond that, everything he's doing, he's doing by his own authority. The Pharisees question it, and he proves by healing the man that he has the authority to forgive sins. It's got a lot of blabber. Just go ahead and do it and show it to us. Yeah, right. Just do it. He, that's why he, he's not citing authority here. When you when when you're a, when you're when you're working in 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 scholarship trying to substantiate an argument, you're always footnoting things. Well, that's what they did when they were teaching something in the scripture. They would say, as Rashi said here, or as so-and-so said there, as this, this uh, great wise teacher 150 years ago said, or as the prophet Isaiah said, or as Moses said, or as a Abraham's life demonstrated, uh, this is then true. Jesus doesn't do that generally. He simply says it. He then teaches himself based on his own authority. He heals based on his own He doesn't say... Adonai, the God, the creator of the universe, casts you out. He simply casts the demons out. He didn't cite authority. He did it. He seated it in himself. Which is a big difference between Jesus and any other rabbi. After this, let's pick it up in verse 27. I'd like to finish chapter 5 if we can. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, and he ran screaming in the other direction. Now, he, um, <laughs> after this, he went out and saw ta a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He just went up to him and said, follow me. Do, do you need a tax collector, Jesus? Follow me. And he, Levi, got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, who's this Levi? Matthew. 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 Interesting. <coughs> so, his actual Jewish name is Levi. It's a very classic Jewish name. Mathetes, Matthew's name in Greek, Mathetes, means disciple. Interesting. Um, so it's almost like a title more than a name. Then, and he goes to a tax Now, who are the tax collectors? Well, they're people that you just don't really want to have around you. Not, I mean, it's not nothing new. Uh, uh, and typically for IRS agents, is nothing new. The only problem, what, what's the old saying? The only problem with strong drink is that it makes you shoot at tax collectors and miss. I mean, <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, antipathy for tax collectors is nothing new. 
Um, in, in this period, they were considered to be cultural and national sellouts because their job was to take up taxes for the foreign invading armies of the Roman Empire. So they were essentially um, traitors to their own kind. They were not the kind of people that you trusted, you wanted to have around you. On top of that, they funded their activities by taxing you more than you owe and then taking as much of that as they could get when you would turn over the money. And that's different from today, how? Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. Wow, so it's not just not just one, Levi, but now you got a whole crowd of them. Ooh. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Now notice, they asked this question of his disciples, but Jesus gives the answer. I love that. Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Where's that put us? <laughs> well, I hope I'm a sinner, actually. <laughs> if you're honest, if you're open and, and true to yourself, you know that you fall in center the center category. <laughs> I mean, you really do. And if you think you don't, then you do anyway, because you just did. <laughs> Almost did. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Aww. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it onto an old garment. Otherwise the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good. In other words, just because John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples do that, what, why do I and my disciples have to do that? After all, there will eventually come a time when I'm no longer with them. And when I'm gone, then they can fast. I'm with them now. It's not time for fasting. Why do you always have to do it the way we've always done it before? We've always done it that way is not really a good response. We have a new way now, he says. 
we're not going to continue taking off keeping the old and putting patches on it. We're not going to put new wine into the old wineskin. We're going to do things differently. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.